There's a, a pivotal moment that comes in the book of Romans, in 3 verse 21, and we're going to read from there uh, down to verse 26. <clears throat> and you remember perhaps that uh, in verse 20, Paul says... Um, for by the works, works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And here's the pivotal moment. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now this is is quite a rich passage, and we could have camped out on it for quite some time. I've known colleagues in the ministry who have spent several times, several sermons, just getting through these verses. But I don't intend to do that. I'm trying to uh, cover it in uh, fairly large, uh, broad brush strokes. But, but it is rich because at its core is the solution to the problem that we have been considering for the last few weeks. We've been dealing with the bad news of the human condition. And the essential problem that is spelled out in chapter 1 verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The essential problem of mankind is that he is ungodly and that he is unrighteous. In other words, in the world, in the world where there is an absence of God-centered living and therefore the absence of obedience to all that God requires, that's what he means by godly, ungodliness. And this problem is not limited to those who are non-religious. But it also applies to those who are strongly religious. And so he concludes with this bad news that we touched on last time. In verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, absolutely everyone in the world is accountable to God. 
left to themselves, every mouth will be closed at the realization, as the realization dawns on them of the predicament that each person is in. And here's Paul's conclusion. It's a big conclusion. No one is justified by the works of the law. Whether that's the law that is written down in the Bible, or the law that God has written on the heart of every man or woman, on the conscience of every man or woman, boy or girl. So when it comes to man's moral performance, no one will have a leg to stand on for a simple reason. And it is that the law, wherever the law is, whether it's in the Bible or in the heart, the law can never make you the person you ought to be. It can never do it. All it can do is point out where the problem is. He's like a, it's like a doctor that is able to diagnose a problem, but it can't tell you what the solution is. And can't do anything about it. So the biggest problem that human beings have then is not one of a, a plethora of social problems or financial problems or, or health problems, but rather there is this ultimate problem. How to be right with God. Or to put it another way as Paul puts it here, how to be justified before God. How to be Forgiven of all your sins and accepted as righteous by God. And how can he do that? How can that happen when everything about the human condition, everything about your life, my life, is wrong? And it's at this point that Paul now turns to the good news. Because he begins this passage with those two, two powerful words. But now. But now. All this bad stuff. Blah, 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 blah. Chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. Bad stuff. But now. And it turn, he turns it round. And it's one of those great turning points that you find in various places in the New Testament where the answer to this huge problem begins to be unfolded. Because in this passage, Paul begins to explain how the righteousness of God is the answer to all that we need. So what does he mean by the righteousness of God? That's the first thing I want to talk about this evening, is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. Paul's already touched on the righteousness of God back in chapter 1, verse 17 where he showed that in the gospel message, which is about Jesus Christ, that God's righteousness is displayed. And if you remember, maybe you remember, back to, I'm sure you all know these things, you've all been paying attention, but there are, there are two things that this can mean, the righteousness of God. And it does mean them both. The first is, from how the phrase is used in the Old Testament. 
where the righteousness of God is often equivalent to God's saving activity. So, for example, Isaiah 46.13. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. I bring near my righteousness. I bring my salvation. So it's the sum total of God's saving work. And these are connected, salvation and righteousness, because God has promised salvation and it is righteous for God to keep his promises. And so in fulfilling his righteousness, he works out his salvation. So this, this righteousness is the sum total of all that God does in the saving of his people. But there's a second thing that righteousness, the righteousness of God means. It means this. It means a righteousness that God provides for us. That can become ours because he gives it to us. And and just pause for a moment and soak in the significance of this. That is the very thing that we don't have. Everybody is unrighteous, ungodly. And the wrath of God is on everybody. But God is able to provide a righteousness. And it can become ours. And he can give it to us. So righteousness, the righteousness of God, must mean both of those things. I.e. God's saving activity and making over to us a righteousness that we cannot have by ourselves. And in doing that, he is able then to deal with all the depths of our sin in all its aspects. Now, to understand how this righteousness becomes ours, I want to describe it under three main qualifications. Firstly, this righteousness comes by grace alone. It's by grace alone. Secondly, it comes in Christ alone. And thirdly, it comes by faith alone. If you were with us this morning, you'll realize that these three terms, grace, Christ, and faith, I was speaking about those this morning. I have only three clubs in my bag (laughs) for this game. I speak of God's grace, I speak of Christ, and I speak of the need for faith. Because this is what the Bible lays out before us. Wherever you look, these three things are vital. Firstly, this righteousness comes by grace alone. In verse 23, just to make the point clear, Paul emphasizes people's uh, predicament. Now this is a verse that you are familiar with. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I first heard that that verse... Uh, the day that I met, first met Christians as a student in 1979. I went so long ago, 1979. And they would come at me with this verse and say, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And no doubt, if you're a Christian, you know that verse only too well. 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's two parts to it. First of all, all have sinned. And we might think about this as everyone having a great list of sinful acts that they have uh, performed against God. They've sinned. And you can make a great list. And uh, all of it is a a kind of an account, a ledger against which which God holds against you because you have failed him. And we might think about everybody as having such a great list. Or to put it another way, a a list of unpayable debts that you can't, you know, debts that you cannot pay. And so every one of us has a sinful past where those debts have accrued and all have sinned. Now I think that's about as far as most people tend to go in thinking about this verse. So the second part of the verse is treated as though he's saying the same thing. All fall short of the glory of God. But notice he's saying something not about the past now, not all have sinned, but he is saying something about the present, the state that people are currently in. All fall short of the glory of God. This is the current state that you're in. Now this glory of God, what does it mean that we we fall short of the glory of God? Of course it has everything to do with how we're made in the first place. And we have seen as we've been going through Genesis chapter 1, that Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. In other words, in, in this pristine state that they found themselves in, when someone looked at Adam and Eve, they could see something of the the glory of God in them. They had characteristics and attributes that reflected the glory of God. But now, because of sin, man falls well short of that glory. And well short of displaying any of that glory. And so that second phrase, falls short of the glory of God, there's a deep sadness about that. Sadness about the condition of mankind. It's like a car that was, was once beautiful. is now riddled with rust and destined for the scrap heap. You put that car against a brand new car and you see the problem. But if you lived in a world, and there are places like this in the world, where every car is rusty and no one's ever seen a brand new car, then people may not notice the significance of the degrading power of rust. And all you can say is, well, my car is just a little bit less rusty than yours. (laughs) And that's what people in the world are like. They say, I may be a sinner, I may have sinned, but I'm not as bad as some people. Such people have not realized how far they have fallen short of the glory of God. They do not realize the nature of the problem that they have before God. That they are tainted, they're spoiled by sin. That they are unrighteous. And so before God they are unjustified. And so left to themselves... People by default are not justified before God. 
So all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But, in verse 24, Paul carries on. He doesn't just leave us there languishing in the misery of our sin. He says, but they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus. Whose grace are we talking about? God's grace. And what does he mean by grace? And so, to put it simply, he means the favor of God, the, the smile of God upon certain people. But when you are the object of God's grace, it means that he shows his favor to you. He's, he looks upon you, he, he, as, as it were, his, a big smile comes across his face and he, he wants to bless you. And it's rather like a, you know, a parent who wants, who favors his or her own children above all other children, even though she cares about other people and other people's children. Above all, you mothers and fathers, you care about your children more than you care about other people. You, you favor your children, rightly so. Or a husband who favors his wife above every other woman. Even though he may know other women. God shows favor to some over others. And they become the special object of his attention and concern and love. And then the next thing about this favor is that it is unmerited favor. You, you can't earn that favor. Uh, you can't take a class to get a qualification in it. You can't work for it and receive God's favor as a reward. You don't go to some spe- on some special quest to show that you're worthy of God's favor. It comes as a gift. Free. Gratis. No payment requires. It is offered and given simply because God wants to give it, not because you've done something to deserve it. it it's an amazing thing, isn't it? And it's favor to those who deserve judgment. Not just to the undeserving, but to the ill-deserving. And this is the argument that Paul has been making all the way through chapters 1 to 3. All are, no one is righteous, all are unrighteous. And the wrath of God is being revealed against unrighteousness and resulting in a final judgment. But the grace of God covers all of that. We'll see how in a minute. So that now his grace, in his grace, as he looks upon sinners like you and me who fall short of his glory, he still smiles upon us and forgives them and accepts them. Oh, the grace of God. How marvelous, how majestic. Does it not strike you this afternoon? as the most precious of gifts, God's grace. That in a world that is so corrupt and broken, and I am part of that corruption, in a world that has left itself for which there is no light at the end of the tunnel, only darkness, that God should show the light of his grace. 
And friends, I want to say to you that you'll only really grasp this, this, the nature of this grace, as you see the true nature of your condition left to yourself. If you don't really believe that you deserve judgment, if you don't really believe that you are sinful and unrighteous and undeserving and ill-deserving, then you will never appreciate the gift of his grace. And if you think that, as you said here this evening, this afternoon, that you are somehow deserving, you know, you're, you, you feel that you're pretty good, that all you need is a little top-up of grace from God to make you acceptable, and there are some people like that, then you will never truly grasp the grace of God. The righteousness of God comes to us by grace alone, grace alone. Secondly, I want to think about how the righteousness of God comes uh, through Christ alone. And Paul goes on in verse 24, that this grace comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And Paul here is saying that this grace is possible wholly and exclusively because of Jesus and what he achieved So what did he achieve? Well, here's here's the two big ideas. The first is propitiation. You probably, some of you may have no idea what that means, propitiation. We never use that word in ordinary language. But verse 25 says this, God put him forward as a propitiation. But it's a very simple idea. Propitiation is the turning away of wrath. God's anger against sin. And so in this setting where God, the wrath of God is revealed against the unrighteousness of man, we badly need something to turn God's anger away. And at that moment, in comes Jesus. In order to bear the full, that he may bear the full weight of the wrath of God for us. And in doing so, to spill his blood and to break his body so that we don't have to bear that wrath. And I just note in passing that it's not that Jesus was an unwilling servant of the Father. You should never think that. That somehow the Father forced Jesus to do this. In the eternal counsels of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, together with one mind, they worked together to bring, uh, to bring about the step of sending the Son of God to take upon himself human nature and willingly die to save a people who hated him. So that's the first idea, the propitiation. The Son of God comes and he bears the wrath of God in place of sinners. The second big idea is this idea of redemption. It's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And it's by propitiation that therefore redemption is possible. And as a good Jew, Paul understood redemption very well. It's a central part of the story of the history of the redemption of the people of Israel, isn't it? Uh, From slavery to Egypt. When God led them out of slavery into freedom. And that story of the Exodus is a shadow of what was to come, that Jesus comes to lead a greater exodus. This time not from slavery to men, but slavery uh, to sin. 
And it's important to note here that the, the sacrificial giving of Jesus is absolutely essential to making the gospel possible. Without Jesus shedding blood, his blood in history 2,000 years ago, there can be no propitiation. The wrath of God is still upon every man or woman. And therefore there can be no redemption because people remain in slavery and bondage to their sin, to sin's power. I met a man once in Solihull who said he was a Christian. And uh, I discovered he didn't go to church at all. And Jesus and his death seemed to have no place in his thinking about Christianity. But that man, I need to say to you, was and perhaps still remains deluded and still in his sin. I met a woman once in Solihull who did go to church. But when I asked her what Jesus meant to her, that's often my question to people who go to church, what does Jesus mean to you? And she answered, well, just without really thinking about it, she said, almost nothing. (laughs) Can you believe it? Almost nothing. And that woman's Christianity will never save anyone because she doesn't have a saviour. She doesn't believe in a saviour. Both of those people thought of themselves as good moral people and no doubt have done many good works. But that kind of Christless Christianity will never save anyone. How central to your life is Jesus Christ this afternoon? It's only through Christ that you can be counted as righteous. Only through Christ. There's no other way. Only Jesus. Well, the last qualification of this righteousness of God is that it is received by faith alone. By faith alone. It comes by grace alone as a gift. It comes through Christ alone in his sacrificial death. But it comes to us personally through faith in Christ. So look at verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Or verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Or verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now how does that death 2,000 years ago become relevant to us? That's a very simple thing. Our hearts are opened up to the fact that that death was for me. Many of you will be able to tell each other of that experience of your eyes being opened up to see Jesus for the first time and to realize that that death was for you. And it comes as a deeply personal impression. And to realize that as I put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, I receive from him 
a righteousness from God. And we can begin to see how the work of Christ solves one of the big problems that people have. Because uh, you'll notice that uh, as Paul finishes off this passage, it's, it's almost like this is a concluding, it's a solution to a problem. He says, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's almost like that's a, an unfixable puzzle. That God be just and he be a justifier. But only when you have the key to the puzzle can those two things come together. You see, God is a God of justice. He is just. He cannot be unjust. Uh, this is, the Psalms are full of this. Psalm 11 verse 7, for God is righteous, he loves justice. Psalm 33 verse 5, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. Psalm 89 verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. And so on and so on. And because we have sinned and broken his law, we're guilty. How can he declare us to be guiltless when we're guilty? How can he declare us to be acquitted? How can he declare us to be righteous? If he's to be just, he can't. We have to be condemned. And he can't just say, you know, some people think this about God. They think that God can just say, oh, well, it's all right, I'll let you off with this. But if he does that, he can't be just, can he? He, he cannot claim to be just. So left to ourselves under this just God, we can never, ever be let off. But, Jesus Christ comes along, the perfectly righteous one, who in his Father's eyes is righteous. And he says, Jesus says, I will carry the burden. I will bear the wrath. I will be the propitiatory sacrifice. I will exhaust the just requirements of your law. I will die for the sins of these people that they deserve. I will take it myself. And on the basis of that work, God's justice is satisfied. God can be just. And he may justify the sinner. The puzzle is fixed. And so how does that benefit come to us then? Simply through faith in the Savior. Simply through faith in Jesus Christ. And in that moment, the moment... Where you first believe a sinner is justified and freed of all his or her guilt. Now, one might ask, what's what's this faith, faith like? Is it merely a kind of intellectual agreement to a scheme of things that God has laid out? Is it just an intellectual thing? Do I just say, yeah, I agree with that? I don't disagree with it. I've heard people say that sort of thing. Do I just agree with it? Well, it's at least that. You have to agree with it. But let me illustrate with a closing story. And it's one that I've told you before. But it's so illustrative of the nature of saving faith. In in 
On the 30th of June, 1859, Charles Blondin became the first man to cross the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And so with hearts in their mouths, you know, the crowds, the many thousands watched on as he made the, the 335 meter long, 49 meter high crossing across the Niagara Falls. And to ever increasing crowds, day after day, he repeated the feat, gradually increasing the complexity. He went across the Niagara Falls on stilts once or blindfold, or with a wheelbarrow and a large sack of potatoes. (laughs) Can you imagine? And everybody was amazed, and everybody acclaimed him, and said, what a man is Charles Blondin. But then one day he said, he turned to the crowd and he said, do you believe that I could put a man in the barrow and carry him across. And yes, they all shouted. They'd seen the sack of potatoes. They said, yes, you can carry a man. And so he said, well, which one of you shall be first? And none came forward, at least not initially. But it's illustrative, isn't it, of what genuine faith is like. When it comes to the crunch, when there's the call to practical commitment to be made, who is willing to act and come to the Lord Jesus Christ and have their life turned upside down and changed and shaken about and all kinds of things? Because your life will never be the same again. But that's an illustration of real faith. It's not just intellectual. Do you believe that you can take a man, Blondin can take a man across the Niagara Falls? Yeah, sure. But I'm not going to be the one. Well, you can't. That's not Christian faith. Some Christian people are like that with Christian faith. I can accept the Bible says, but I don't. I'm not willing to change my life for it, or have my life changed. But for those who are willing to have their life turned upside down, taken from one side to the other. It is to those people that the grace of God has come. It is those, to those people that who get to know Christ. It's those people who get to know their sins forgiven and to know that they're accepted as righteous with a righteousness that comes from God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that it comes by grace alone. That it's only found in Christ alone. And it is simply received by faith alone. We don't earn it. We don't qualify. We don't contribute anything. We simply come to Jesus and receive from him. Father, help us all to trust in him. And to be willing to have our lives shaken upside down, if necessary, for the sake of the the gospel of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.